Hello and welcome to Asia Matters. My name is Andrew People. This is the podcast where we try to go into depth into some of the stories shaping the world's most fascinating region. This week we're turning our attention to India. There's been plenty of unrest there so far this year. The cause of this? Well, really it's an apparent rise in so-called Hindu nationalism under India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his ruling BJP party. The current unrest was really sparked by a change in the law in late December. That's going to make it harder for Muslims in particular to become citizens of India. And this has been seen as very antithetical to India's traditions and its political traditions, certainly since it became a republic. There was also a plan for a national register of Indian citizens. Again, that's been seen as quite prejudicial against the Muslim population. There's about 200 million Muslims in India. It's one of the biggest Muslim communities in the world. So what lies behind this move towards nationalism in India? And where does it leave the reputation of Mr. Modi? And indeed, how does this play into broader perceptions of India overseas as well? Joining us to discuss these questions, we're really lucky today to have Madhav Kozler. Madhav teaches law and politics at Columbia University and Ashoka University. And he's the author of India's Founding Moment, The Constitution of a Most Surprising Democracy. Madhav, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's great to be Thank you. As I said, things have come to a head somewhat in India, thanks to these proposed law changes. Why do you think nationalism has kind of reared its head in India in recent years in this way? Why have things come to a head in this way at this precise point, in your view? I think there's been a, a declining public institutional culture for several decades. So India has been functioning as a democracy for a while, but it's not been functioning all that well. And public institutions have been struggling for some years. There's been a discontent in Indian political life for quite a while. And the current political dispensation has somehow managed to mobilize a variety of resentments. I think that it's it's been bubbling in some ways, not necessarily in the form of Hindu nationalism, but in the form of some kind of disenchantment with the system that existed. Not 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 and in that respect, not all that dissimilar to what you see in the United States. Actually. Yes. And maybe and maybe in Britain as well. Yes. So it's kind of part of this phenomenon that we're seeing around the world. Narendra Modi, I mean we sort of knew he was going to be like this. I mean, when he was first elected back in 2014, he'd come with this reputation from his time running Gujarat province. People kind of knew his nationalist tendencies. How important has that been to his electoral success? Because, of course, at the same time, he was also promising big changes for the Indian economy. Was his nationalism a key part of his appeal, do you think? I think it was certainly a key part of his appeal in the second election, right. which was run on a much more. So this is the election of 2019, which was run on a much more nakedly and plainly Hindu nationalistic platform. The election of 2014, I think, was rather different. The election of 2014, he spoke a different language. There was a, a distinct kind of grammar and vocabulary around development and anti-corruption. Mm. And there was the shadow of the prior government. And so that was sort of less clear. But in 2019, I think the mask was off in some way. Is the nationalism that we saw in the 2019 campaign, 
do you think that was crucial to his success? In other words, do you think he would have won if he hadn't uh, gone down that path? It's it's a bit hard to know, Andrew, for the simple reason that his rise is coming in the context of an extremely poor opposition. Right. And so you're in a situation where it's not clear what the alternatives are. And in the presence of a viable alternative, the story might well have been different. So I suspect that there are some people who voted for him precisely because of the things he said. There are some people who voted for him not caring so much actually about the things he said. So, you know, it's not it's not that they they are either upset by it or enthused by it, but they're kind of indifferent to it. Right. And I think it's probably a combination of both of those things in the absence of any real alternative that led to it. Hmm. To what extent as well do you think that Mr. Modi and his party have accentuated nationalism in part because the economy in India hasn't quite been the success story that they had hoped? Um, I think the economy this year in the year to March is set for its its weakest growth for about a decade, still 5% growth rate, which is, is pretty strong, but um, quite weak by Indian standards, at least in recent history. Uh, to what extent is this a sort of classic nationalist politician's playbook where you kind of cover up for economic weakness with an appeal to those sort of nationalist sentiments uh, among the people? So I think the economy is in a terrible shape. And I think that it's important to emphasize that and to understand that. I think that it's not quite clear that they are focusing on this cultural stuff and on this nationalist, Hindu nationalist agenda simply because the economy isn't working. I think that this is what they explicitly believe. This is what they explicitly say. And, you know, I think the mistake that a lot of people have made is in a way to underestimate their sincerity. Right. They have said this for several decades. And I think I think people who are surprised by what is happening, many of us, are surprised because of one of two reasons. Either one underestimated their sincerity and so thought that, look, this was basically just a kind of electoral political ploy, right? You mm. wouldn't really believe this stuff. Or the second thing that they thought is, even if you believe this stuff, politics isn't really a domain which is about what you believe. It's a domain which is about what you do. And even if you believe this stuff, you're just not going to be able to do it. Both because there are enough formal checks and balances Mm. and there are enough informal forces, you know, social forces, civil society, media, so on and so forth, that... It could just be that you have all kinds of beliefs, but politics will result in a certain kind of moderating mode of governance. And I think both of those realities have been severely punctured. In that sense, it does seem quite similar to the the Trump phenomenon in the sense that, again, I guess people, first of all, couldn't believe that somebody like that in America could get elected. Secondly, they couldn't quite believe he really meant it. And third that he wouldn't be able to do it, all the things that he was claiming he would be able to do. And of course, um, we've all been surprised by the fact that, yes, he did get elected. And actually, it turns out he can bend the US political system towards pretty nationalistic ends if he wants to. Seems quite a similar phenomenon in some ways. So I, I, I think the phenomenon is similar, but I think it's different, actually, in 
in some important respects. And I think a distinction is important to underline. The first difference, Andrew, is that the U.S. has still managed to put forth an, and to present a number of checks and balances on Trump. It has a vibrant media. Mm. It has a number of vibrant civil society organizations. It actually has a considerable amount of its judicial arm that is functioning. Right. And India doesn't have, India has passed using all of those. Right. So there's a complete buy-in by the media. I mean, civil society organizations aren't vibrant in the same way. And so Trump, actually, there are lots of checks on Trump in the way that they simply aren't here. And so here you see the creeping authoritarianism really showing its face. I think the second is that Trump has actually, and this follows from the first, hasn't managed to do all that much. Right. I mean, Trump has managed to say a lot. And he's done some horrific stuff on the, in the international realm and so on and so forth. But in, in general, Trump's impact hasn't been as devastating as the impact here, simply because he's had less power. And I think the third is that in Trump's case, you see sort of tensions about the rise of executive power and what it can mean and a certain corruption of the public discourse. Mm. so on and so forth. In, in India, you see two pretty strong things that are emerging, right? Communalism and authoritarianism. And they are both emerging hand in hand. And I think part of the problem that a lot of us face or a lot of people face in analyzing it that is that you focus on one or the other, right? You focus yeah. either on sort of Muslims or you focus on what the state is doing. But actually, it's both of those things go together, right? There are a lot of things that are happening that have nothing to do with Muslims. Like, for example, the great increase in, this, in the surveillance state, which people have begun to write a little bit about. Mm. And the way in which, even in the current protests, which you spoke about at the beginning of this podcast, about the, the sort of the way in which things have come to a head and the kind of unrest, one of the things that one saw in these podcasts is the police use of things like facial recognition right. of, of things like surveillance without any real legislative oversight with any, they sort of operate in a, in a kind of, of legal black hole. And so I, I think it's important to get a sense of both of those things going together. In that sense, I think it's quite different from Trump. It's very interesting. So the opposition that we're seeing, the protests that have been taking place in India, how widespread is the support for those protests and how sort of broad based are they in terms of the kinds of people that are protesting against the government's moves? I think, Andrew, the real honest answer to that is it's very hard to know. Yeah. Right. So there are both sides who are obviously it's reading this in a certain way. And for some of them, they read it as being very significant and as among the largest protests that India has seen in its independent history. For other people, they see it as basically just a collection of Muslim plus a certain upper middle class. Right. right. And so from their perspective, it's going to peter out. I think what should be said, I think that there's certainly something there. Right? I think it would be a mistake to think that there's nothing there. I think the protests are significant in some important respects. I think what's crucial 
is that we have to see whether or not it can actually become something that translates into a political movement, right. into a political alternative, into something that is politically viable, hmm. right? Because at the moment, it's not that. And some of the fact that it's not that has also been a strength for it, right? It's given it a certain amount of spontaneity. It's given it a certain amount of credibility, actually. But I think in due course, the story is going to have to be that what does it amount to when you go to the ballot box? And currently, I think the most depressing feature of India today is that there is a complete failure on the other side, a complete failure to grasp how serious the problem is and to coordinate and to actually think politically. That's fascinating. It kind of leads me on to asking you about what you've been writing about recently, I think in both the Atlantic and the foreign policy magazine about how a lot of this actually goes back to the original Indian constitution that was set up 70 years ago after India became independent from from Great Britain. Can you talk us through the argument that you've been making there? Because I think it's, it's, it's very interesting and provides really interesting background to the current protests and the moves by Narendra Modi. Absolutely. So one of the things Andrew, I discuss in a book I've just taken out, India's founding moment, is the thought that debates about communalism and about identity were a huge part of the first half of the 20th century. Hmm. And when the partition of British India happens in 1947, it is in many respects a constitutional failure because you had four decades of actually trying to resolve tensions and and claims by different communities through the realm of some kind of arrangement where you either give, you know, you see them through groups and you either put them in separate electoral systems or you give them quotas or you give them greater representation to actually their population. And all of this ultimately fails. And it ultimately fails because there's a sense at the time that, look, this is actually a trap. Right. It is a trap because whichever way you do it, if that's going to be the game you play, you'll always make somebody unhappy. Yes. Either the majority or the minority. And so what partition throws into sharp relief is the idea that you cannot have a sustainable political environment if you're actually going to be framing the question in this way. This is, of course, aside from the fact that it's also undemocratic. And the reason why it's both undemocratic and it's unsustainable is the following, that a central feature of democracy is the idea of a political majority and a political minority. And the thought is that both of these things are constantly fluid and are constantly changing. Mm -hmm. If I believe something, I can try to convince you, I can bring you to my side, I can make us the political majority or or, or we lose. Yes, But that's how we express preferences and that's why we buy into the system and that's why we support the system even when we lose. The minute you make the choice or the feeling of majority-minority as permanent categories that rest on some ethnic configuration, in a way it's not self-rule because you're saying that people's preferences are not forged in the crucible of politics. Right. They actually exist outside of it. They're forged by birth, essentially. 
they, yeah, exactly. It's not. It's exactly, and it's and and your point that it's forged by birth is actually a very deep metaphor because it's birth in the sense that that was the meaning of the ancient and the medieval world. What made the ancient and the medieval world different from the modern world is the thought of modernity was that you could create and recreate your world. You could actually modernity gave us a way to create the world in our own image. And democratic politics gave us a way to do it non-violently, and that's what was different from the medieval and the ancient world where I was born and my world was a certain way. Now the thought was that if you actually are engaged in this identity game, you will never ever be able to solve the problem mm-hmm. because you will always be stuck. And in a way, if you see people like Jinnah, who was the founder of Pakistan, Jinnah took the problem of representation seriously. But you can see his stubborn commitment and his his intransigence about how people will only be a certain way in the very proposal of Pakistan. Because ultimately, what did Pakistan yeah. do? It hoped to secure a minority by making them a majority. Yes, right? by becoming so a by separate country, by becoming absolutely. Pakistan. Yes, absolutely. And so I think, in a way, what's happening in India today would be horrific to the founders at two levels. It would be horrific because they think they would think that this is actually not a kind of freedom at all, because freedom is about expressing individual interests at the ballot box rather than being cabined into permanent interests on the basis of community. But they would also think that, look, this is actually not a way in which the country can sustain. This is not going to end up being a politically viable way to have sustainable politics and a safe and secure life. Because if you run things on ethnic lines, ultimately the, the ethnic minority will break away as Pakistan did. And that was kind of a wake-up call for people in, in the 1940s that, yes, if you're going to have a, a settled democratic India, then you, you can't run things in this way. It has to be run more on individuals, have their own self-determination. Completely. And it's not just that the ethnic might. So, so that's right. So a, the territorializing of the question is in a way internal to the problem, right? The minute you frame the issue that way, it's going to become territorialized. Mm. And at some point, the minority is going to say goodbye. But in some ways, if they don't say goodbye, then, you know, there's constitutional chaos here as well, right? They will say goodbye either in formal or informal terms, right? But basically, you will have an extra constitutional state because you will have a vast amount of the population who don't support the legitimacy of the state. But the thing is, even when they leave, whatever politics you run, if you still frame it always the majority minority question through the ethnic lens, you'll always have that problem. It's a permanent problem. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's, it's a question that can never give you the right answer, which is why this role of identity is actually profoundly antithetical to democracy. That makes sense. So in the early years of the independent uh, post-colonial India, how did things sort of hang together if, if this has always been a sort of running underlying problem in India? I kind of go back to my original question, what kept things together for, you know, 70 years and why is it sort of blown up now in the, just in the last few years? It's a, it's a hard question to answer, right? But I would say two things. I think one, what kept it together was some kind of political consensus around keeping it together. Hmm. Now, whether that was done very effectively or not is an open question. 
right? In many respects, a lot of the seeds of a certain kind of state power and communalism were already sowed during that accommodative process. But at least there was some kind of political commitment to the sense that, look, there are some lines that will not be crossed. And whether that was just the remainder of a certain Nehruvian commitment to secularism and freedom and tolerance, which had a certain path dependence, that's one potential answer. But the second is that I do think that there was a genuine buy-in, right, from multiple stakeholders. And that has somehow collapsed. Now, it's not fully clear why that has collapsed. And the one thing that can be said is that because it's collapsed in the face of no alternative, it's always hard to know actually how much appeal there is around it, Mm. right? Appeal around it will obviously grow because there are all these efforts to make appeal around it, right? And the thing is that because they have so much power and money and so on and so forth, you know, the the way in which they represent things will become a certain form of reality. But it isn't a contest. And so in the absence of that, it's hard to know what the situation would be like if you really had a viable alternative. To what extent do you fear that a Rubicon has been crossed now, though, that once you let this genie out of the bottle, then it, it can't be put back? Or is there a possibility that this is a a sort of temporary phase and somehow that consensus that you talked about that there was operative for so many years in India can return? I mean, in some ways, I do firmly believe that politics is a profoundly contingent space. And in that respect, I do think that things change and things can change. I think politics is the kind of space where in some sense, you know, you, you, Rubicons are never really crossed, right? Like you, you can always imagine and reimagine. But I think it's just going to be profoundly difficult. Hmm. That's what I'll say. Because you're actually going to need an ideological commitment to the remaking of modern India with the same kind of energy and commitment that actually the current people have. And that's not easy. And there isn't really, it doesn't seem to be forthcoming. Yeah. It's worrying times. It's a, it's a sign really of how all systems in a way survive to an extent on consensus. And, and once that once that breaks down, you can be headed in, in quite worrying directions. Madhav, thank you so much for joining us today. It's absolutely fascinating to talk to you. I do urge anyone listening to this to read Madhav's recent articles. They're, they are fascinating. Thanks again also to my colleagues, Rebecca Bailey and Vincent Nee, and also to Alex Lestrange, who did the music for Asia Matters. You can contact us at Asia Matters Pod on Twitter and at asiamatterspod at gmail.com. I hope you enjoyed this edition and see you next time. Thank you.